and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle East Center for the first session of the Hillary term. My name is Eugene Rogan, and as director of the center, it's a great pleasure to welcome all of you here. I can see that word has gotten around the town. We have more than the usual crowd who has turned out for what promises to be a really exceptional panel to discuss the kind of current issue that has shaped and defined the Middle East as a region in recent years, alas, to the region's disadvantage. On the 3rd of January, at the very start of this year, a missile strike outside the Baghdad airport threatened to change the geostrategy and the peace of the region in unpredictable, unforeseeable ways. The killing of General Qasem Soleimani, whose role as a sort of military maestro spanning right across the Levant through Saudi Arabia to Yemen, a stalwart of the Islamic Republic of Iran, was certainly the boldest move the Americans had ever taken against Iran since, well, the accidental downing of an Iranian airliner, which wasn't a strike that the Americans meant to take against Iran. These events, of course, add up cumulatively in Iran's thinking about its place in the world and its relations with the powers and with the United States in particular. And I think a country that had been experiencing tremendous domestic pressure, discontent, calls for change, widespread nationwide protests, suddenly was united in their antagonism against the United States. It was about that point when Major General Felix Gedney approached with the idea that perhaps we should start the term off with a panel discussion to address the very rapidly changing situation in the Middle East, and I am grateful to Felix for the suggestion it's led to today's meeting. And it must be said that the word unpredictable and unforeseeable really captures the dynamic of the past couple of weeks because truly there have been more turns in the course of events than I think at the time we were bringing the panel together any of us envisaged. And so we'll have a chance to explore not just the strike against Qasem Soleimani and the immediate aftermath of that attack, but what the downing of the Ukrainian airliner and the turn of events with the JCPOA and what not have all entailed, and what the pressure on Iran holds for Iraq, from the Gulf region, from the Middle East as a whole. To discuss these issues, we have an extraordinary panel tonight. For one, we've never managed to get quite so many stars on one table. I'm thinking the stars one wears on the epaulets. So I would like to begin by introducing Major General Felix Gedney, who has come to us after having served this country as a chief liaison, would that be correct to say, in Britain's contribution to the struggle against Daesh, in which role he has seeing the inside of places like Syria and Iraq that the rest of us just read about in the newspaper. We are delighted to be welcoming Emma Sky, who, by my recollection, served no fewer than three tours of duty in Baghdad in the aftermath of the occupation, despite her British accent, in the role of telling American officers what to do. If I add the number of stars that she bossed around, then I would say that Emma is our highest ranking general at the panel tonight. <laughs> she now is teaching at Yale University and we can only envy our cousins in New Haven their good fortune. Representing the Middle East Center, our own Professor Sir Adam Roberts, Senior Research Fellow in the International Relations of the Middle East. Yes, I did practice that. Toby Mathewson, who has carved out his own place for the study of Shiism in the Arab Gulf states, but is currently at work on a study of Shiism and Sunnism in the region of cross-historical survey, which we will all be reading and talking about very soon, inshallah. And to wrap it all up, a very dear old friend of mine and of this center, going back 25 years since he first came as Britain's fastest rising 
most rapidly promoted officer, as I recall. <laughs> Weren't you the youngest to make brigadier in British history? No, it's bollocks that. <laughs> I, mean, I don't think it was true. Yes, that's I'm sure British. John here would be stupid, even if I claimed it. <laughs> what the British continue to insist to refer to as Lieutenant General, though we in America would call a Lieutenant General, Simon Mayo. Simon, Toby, Emma, Felix, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us tonight and for sharing the very deep experience you all have had in the region, historically and most recently. I would like to ask Felix to get us started. Emma will go second. Toby, as ordered, would have it a chair's third. And then the last word, God help us, to Simon. <laughs> With no further ado, Felix. Well, thank you, Eugene, and uh, good evening. As Eugene said, I'm Felix Gedney. I'll start with one disclaimer. What I'm going to say is my own views rather than Ministry of Defence or Department of Defence of the US views. So it's all my own opinion. And two biases that I'll own up to. The first is that I'm not a pacifist. And I don't mean that glibly as a soldier. What I mean is I, I don't believe that is a valid strategy in today's world. And, and that'll come clear in some of my comments. And secondly, I tend to think long-term. And uh, being a soldier, that sometimes puts you at odds with the political reality in, in capitals, uh, particularly Western democratic capitals. So a bit of context to begin with. Um, several years ago, our adversaries, particularly Iran and Russia, worked out that they would not be able to match toe-to-toe -to -toe US military capability or conventional capability. And they developed strategies that would enable them to counter Western and US interests by conducting operations through proxies and influence uh, in such a way that it would not elicit a conventional military response from the US. And nowadays, we in the military, we call it grey zone warfare, effectively doing stuff that will not meet that threshold of a military response. And it's been very good for them. It absolutely depends on an understanding of where our threshold is. And it is enabled by a Western lack of political will to use hard power and an unwillingness to escalate incidents. And for many years, Iran has been attempting to increase their regional influence and control the Middle East through the use of proxy forces and influencing governments, particularly in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and the Yemen. This activity has been destabilizing for the region, as well as being a direct threat to Western and US interests in the region. And um, let's not forget that in my second tour of Iraq in Basra in 2008, the weapons that were killing British servicemen at that point were Iranian weapons smuggled across the border. And General Soleimani, uh, Qasim Soleimani, a very effective leader, was both the architect and the leader of much of this activity in command of the Quds Force. And whatever your views on the Iranian nuclear deal, this activity did not stop in 2015 after the implementation of the JCPOA. Last year we saw an escalation of activity <coughs> one would argue largely in response to the US maximum pressure policy. We saw shooting down of a US drone, and then coming into the summer we saw a seizure of tankers, an Iranian flouting of, of sanctions against Syria, 
Uh, and then uh, towards the end of the year, we saw a further increase in uh, tension as Iranian-backed militia attacked U.S. bases, uh, including the killing of a U.S. national, a contractor in Kirkuk. U.S. retaliation against popular mobilization force bases, and then protests, violent protests, outside the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. And against this backdrop with shades of Benghazi, now Baghdad embassy is very different from Benghazi. Uh, I lived in that embassy <coughs> for, for a year and it was going to take more than that protest to, to take it down. But, but against that backdrop, the U.S. is then left with a, a difficult decision on what their response to this should be. And I'm guessing, and this is only my supposition, that the options that will be put to the White House will have broadly been a do-nothing, back down, and risk further emboldening our adversaries. A tit-for-tat response of some sort, which would have endangered a, a creeping escalation into a larger-scale conflict, or an escalation at that point. And President Trump chose the escalation, indeed, a probably the top end of the escalation uh, options. And since the strike, on the whole, and notwithstanding the sad loss of a Ukrainian airliner, which will have slightly diverted uh, influence and activities within Iran, what we've seen has been, on the whole, de-escalatory. Iran fired a large number of missile, missiles, over, an, uh, over a dozen at US air bases in Iran, and that was significant because they were Iran. It was a state response. It was from Iran, Iranian missiles. But I would argue that's a relatively muted response. The risk of, of casualties, relatively low. And indeed, the rhetoric has been reasonably de-escalatory as well. Uh, and I include in that Khomeini's preaching on Friday. A few other points. Uh, I'm not surprised that uh, US allies were not told about the strike. Indeed, I think it, he, uh, President Trump did Western and European premiers a favour by not informing them. First of all, I, I, I can't see how they would have told their allies uh, operational security wouldn't have allowed it. But it also enabled European nations and US allies not to have to take a firm view from the outset. If they had been told, they would have had to have said afterwards, yes, we knew and we asked them not to do it, or yes, we supported it. So it allowed a, a European nations to take more of a middle path. Was it legal? I believe that that depends on information that we don't have. Probably more classified than we have. But in short, it depends on Article 51 of the UN Charter, whether it was done in self-defence to the US, and then international human rights law. Whether it was necessary, were further attacks being planned, and whether it was proportional. And when we look at proportionality, consider although it was politically very impactful, the level of human suffering in that strike and the number of people killed was probably less than other options that would have been on the table. And just to so make a few final points, I have a, a concern around all of this that a media lust to sensationalise the incident and particularly the relationship with Iran, coupled with a uh, extreme polarization, I've heard it called hyperpartisanship, particularly in Washington, D.C., and a White House comms policy which goes direct from president to the people, 
leaving you very much unspun, raw comments, is clouding views on whether this strategy of striking against Qasim Soleimani was the right strategy. Undoubtedly, there is a danger that we have further complicated already difficult politics in Iraq. It's made the Iraq-US relationship very difficult. And it has also potentially put our counter-ISIS battle in threat as well. And there isn't too much of a difficult to see that uh, Sunni communities feeling threatened by an increasingly Iranian-influenced Iraq will turn to violent extremists if they feel threatened and if they feel that is the most hopeful future for them. And that could be the best recruiting sergeant for ISIS um, of all. But the strike has shown that this White House is prepared to escalate when they feel it necessary. And this will have changed the strategic calculus for Iran and potentially Russia as they consider the threshold for their grey zone operations. So, uh, in concluding, I argue that the, that the strategic sense or not of this strike really depends on the balance between the damage that is done within Iraq uh, and in our counter-ISIS fight, and potentially what op opportunities is left for Russia, versus the extent to which it curtails Iranian and other adversaries' activities, which is both destabilising in the region and against our interests. In the short term, the loss of Soleimani will have had a significant effect because he was a great leader and ran a lot of this personally. But will it have made grey zone operations more difficult for our adversaries in the future? That's the question. Thank you. Thank you, Felix. Emma? Felix, you're not a pacifist. <laughs> it's clear. <laughs> I want to go back to the 1st of October. On the 1st of October in Iraq is when a whole series of protests really began. And Iraq witnessed thousands upon thousands, at times it's gone up to hundreds of thousands, of young Iraqis coming out into the streets and squares to protest the corrupt government, to protest the lack of jobs, and to protest bad public services. And one of the big demands that they had was to get rid of Iranian interference. That these young people blamed Iran for propping up the corrupt, incompetent government in Baghdad. And the protesters have been calling for a total change in the system that was put in place in 2003 after the invasion. Now this system, the Iraqis call it Mohassasa, ethnic quotas, this system was supposed to ensure pluralism by making sure that all components of Iraqi society were included in the new Iraq. But what it did was to institutionalize sectarianism. That that job was for Sunni, that job for Shia, that job for Kurd, and that permeated down all the ministries. And the ministries became fiefdoms of different political parties. And became very much a kleptocratic system. So after Iraq's civil war, there was no longer a disagreement over what share of the pie each group should get. There was agreement that they would share it out among themselves. And so it meant, you know, every year in Iraq, there's 800,000 young people who then become part of the labor market 
and who can't find employment unless they're attached to one of the parties or militias. So these protests have been going on since October. And for those in power, it's been an existential threat to them. And it's also been of great concern to Iran. The protesters torched the Iranian consulates in Najaf and in Karbala. And the Iraqi government and its associated militias responded very harshly. Over 500 young protesters have been killed. Over 20,000 have been wounded. And most of these are young Shia men, and most of the people killing them are Shia security forces. These young people absolutely do not use sectarian language. And in their protests, they've been trying to create their sense of what they want their country to be, a sense of citizenship. And you see it in the slogans, you see it in the graffiti, you see young women out there painting murals, you see the little tuk-tuks that came to Baghdad, I think a couple of years ago. These have been driven by 16, 17-year-olds <coughs> in and out of the crowds, ferrying people to the hospitals. A real great sense of national pride. And for those who say that Iraqi nationalism died a long time ago, just look at these protests. They've been quite incredible, incredibly brave. And their protests have led to the resignation of the Iraqi Prime Minister and to a new election law being passed through the parliament that is supposed to move the country away from this sectarian system and create an electoral system where people are elected as the representatives of the constituencies of where they live. So that is kind of the backdrop of what was going on in Iraq. Now, as Felix mentioned, the maximum pressure that the US have been putting on Iran played out in a number of ways. You mentioned the attacks in the Gulf. It also played out on Iraqi militias, Iraqi Shia militias, backed by Iran, starting to escalate attacks against coalition forces in Iraq. Now, these coalition forces are on Iraqi bases, and they're there with Iraqi security forces. And as Felix mentioned, the one on Kirkuk, K1, K1 was it? Yeah, the one on K1 in Kirkuk killed a US contractor, which then led to the US targeting the bases of Kitab Hezbollah in Iraq and inside Syria, and killing 25 of these Iraqi militia members. Now, the US forces, the basis of them being inside Iraq is to fight against ISIS. They have not targeted Shia militias since, I think, 2011. In the fight against ISIS, you've got these Shia militias, you've got Iran, coalition forces all had the same enemy, and they were fighting, you know, indirectly coordinating against that similar enemy. But with ISIS defeated, maximum pressure on Iran, Iran response was to ratchet up pressure on the presence of US forces inside Iraq. So this was really seen as, like, how can America, without the permission of the Iraqi government, target these Shia militias? Well, you might ask, why hadn't the Iraqi government been doing more to stop these Shia militias from targeting US forces? And a bunch of supporters of Qatar Hezbollah then attacked the US embassy. 
Iraqi security forces didn't prevent these supporters of Shia militias from coming right up to the embassy. In fact, there was government officials who were among them, militia leaders who were among them, and they were providing them with food as well. And they started to see the anti-American language being used. The US response, as Felix mentioned, was to target Qasem Soleimani. But in that attack, it also assassinated the leader of Qatar, Hezbollah, Abu Mahdim Bahandas. Now, not only is this man the head of Qatar, Hezbollah, he's also deputy head of the Popular Mobilization Forces, so that's all the Shia militias in Iraq, which come under the Iraqi government. So he was seen by the Iraqis as a senior Iraqi official. So that was like America's conducted an attack inside Iraq without the permission of the Iraqi government, which killed a senior Iraqi official. The Iraqi Prime Minister, Adil Abdul Mahdi, said that Qasem Soleimani was supposed to have a meeting with him that morning to pass on Iran's response to Saudi's proposal that the Iraqi Prime Minister had been passing back and forth. I don't know if that's true, but that's what the Iraqi Prime Minister said. I think he was visibly shocked by what had happened, and he instructed Parliament to basically have a vote to demand the removal of all US forces. Now, you can imagine this is emotion, this is the heat of the time. That parliamentary vote did take place. It doesn't mean anything. The Sunni and Kurdish MPs were absent from the vote. The vote passed with Shia votes, but it doesn't have any legal standing. It was just to give Adil Abdul Mehdi some support. <coughs> this meant that US had to stop, and all coalition forces had to stop the fight against ISIS, because they now had to focus on force protection, fearing there could be more attacks. Now, in amongst all this is what is the bigger game? Iraqis hate having their country used as a battlefield between Iran and America. They hate that. For Iran, Iran sees the biggest threat to it, the existential threat to it, being from the US. And Iran's strategy is trying to get US forces out of Iraq. That's its big goal. President Trump also wants to get US forces out of Iraq. He wants to get them out of the Middle East. But he wants to do it on his terms and on his time frame. And when the Iraqi Prime Minister said, please send officials to Baghdad to negotiate the withdrawal of US forces, uh, the State Department or President responded, no. They're going to come back to talk about continuing with the fight against ISIS. And the fight against ISIS has been restarted. So we are in this situation. The protest movement continues. It's been blocking important streets in Baghdad, in cities in the south. The Iraqi government is a caretaker government because the prime minister has resigned, but there's no agreement as yet about who will replace him. So the Iraqi government is basically in paralysis. And as for the Shia militias, they are calling for a massive demonstration, a million-man march on the 24th of June to demand all US forces out of Iraq and the closure of the US embassy. They won't get a million men, but they could well get large numbers. And the issue now becomes, 
you've got the protesters demanding a change in the whole system of government. You've got the militias demanding the US get out. And or you've got an Iraqi government that's not really in existence. So it's becoming a very, even more complicated situation. Thank you, Emma. Toby? Thank you. Um, so let's start with some uh, basic uh, facts about what uh, has happened. Um, I mean, this was definitely a killing that was illegal under international law. It was the assassination of the top um, military commander by one country of another country in a third sovereign country. Um, so definitely illegal under international law. Whether it was illegal under American law is currently debated in the United States in a highly bipartisan manner. I'm not going to go into that. That is for Americans uh, to discuss. <laughs> Secondly, when we look at Iraq, I think, you know, I really appreciated these, uh, you know, elaborations on Iraq. Much of the discussion has been about uh, Iran, but perhaps given that the strike took place in Iraq, uh, let's talk about Iraq briefly. It had the effect, the killing of uh, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis, uh, who was just explained, was a very senior person in these popular mobilization units, which were formed um, to, to defeat uh, ISIS based on a fatwa by uh, Ayatollah Sistani, the most senior Shi cleric uh, in Iraq and probably worldwide. It played the probably most important role in the defeat of ISIS, and uh, you know, there I would be interested to hear the views of, of my colleagues on the panel. But it was definitely, you know, a very, well, it was a very popular military force, uh, in a sense. It then started to try to go into politics and therefore started to uh, ruffle all kinds of feathers in Iraq, but was a, a movement, a militia, that hundreds of thousands of young uh, Iraqis joined, partly because they had no other future, but partly because they wanted to go and, uh, you know, defend defend their country. So it had this, and so the assassination of this particular official had uh, the, imp the effect that it effectively rallied all the different Iraqi political forces and parties around one discourse, and that discourse is that this attack was a grave uh, violation of uh, Iraqi sovereignty, it embarrassed the Iraqi government, and that as a result of that, all American troops and by extension coalition troops should leave Iraq. And while this uh, resolution that was passed by the parliament is apparently not binding, it was quite interesting that particularly the different Shi political factions who actually you know, don't agree on, on many things, I mean, they're also constantly infighting, actually uh, agreed on this particular point. And I think in the medium to long term, uh, this uh, assassination therefore will probably spell the end of the American military presence in Iraq and by extension coalition forces. Therefore, this is probably, well, was probably not the intended, you know, outcome of the strike. It was also interesting to see that the funeral processions that started uh, immediately after the, the assassinations toured all the major uh, Shi shrines, first in Iraq, then uh, the body of Qasem Soleimani also went all around all of those shrines and then went uh, on a tour of the Iranian cities. It was a very impressive show of, in a sense, public kind of Shi mourning tradition, but it was a very strong show also of integration of the Shi spaces in Iraq and Iran. And as has just been pointed out, 
This came right after months of very, very large anti-government protests uh, in which particularly the Iranian role and the role of the political parties was under attack. So again, in that kind of political field of Iraq, this was you know, a very strong own goal. And don't let anyone uh, fool you that it worked uh, somehow particularly well in Iraq. One should also mention that the political system that these protesters were protesting against uh, was obviously set up in 2003, as was just mentioned. But you know, Iran uh, basically had no role in setting up this system. The system uh, was devised uh, in the United States and in Britain in cooperation with political parties that had long been in exile and in, you know, underground and who actually advocated for that kind of sectarian quota system. And the Lebanese political model was used as somehow a kind of example of a well-functioning Middle Eastern state. <laughs> and, uh, well, it was not intended as a pun, but uh, I'm glad you, you're seeing the irony, well-informed audience. And, uh, and was therefore exported to Iraq and implemented. So, in a sense, the Iranians uh, profited from that uh, tremendously and have profited from it ever since, but they are not you know, the, the cause for the for this system to have emerged. I mean, they were not the ones who overthrew Saddam, and they were not the ones who institutionalized the system. A little side note on Lebanon, as you all know, in Lebanon too, the last year has, has seen massive protests that were explicitly anti-sectarian, that wanted to get rid of this political system, that institutionalized sectarian representation and uh, difference. And the protest movement in Lebanon has also been stifled by this assassination because various different forces now were confronted with this new regional order after the assassination and were forced, in a sense, to pay lip service to the kind of resistance uh, discourse and uh, you know, to mourn uh, uh, Soleimani and al-Mohandis. And even the most uh, kind of anti-Iranian Lebanese actors didn't really dare to, to endorse this killing because... I'm just mentioning this because there's a sense, particularly in the US media, that somehow the whole region is so happy about this assassination and it's you know, one step of a great Middle Eastern policy that's going really well. Well, I'm sure you will find a few people who say, well, you know, this was great. There are you know, quite a lot of Syrians who understandably have uh, great grievances with what Soleimani's forces did in Syria and a number of others, but on the whole, uh, I wouldn't call this a region that is somehow incredibly happy about, uh, about what happened, just to get that uh, right as well. As colleagues have pointed out, in Iran, this uh, assassination had the immediate effect of bringing millions out into the street, supporting a political order and a kind of national uh, identity that is, is very, very hostile to foreign interference and did so at a time after which the uh, Iranian regime had for a number of years actually experienced uh, quite severe anti-government protests. So the regime had actually lost quite a lot of legitimacy, but this assassination has given it a tremendous amount uh, of legitimacy. And these protests, or I mean protests of the massive mourning uh, rallies, that even occurred in places uh, such as Khuzestan, where support for the Iran Islamic Republic is usually lower than, than in other places. Even in those places, the rallies were massive and were much larger than the anti-government protests uh, in the last few years. That obviously changed all to a certain extent with the downing of the Ukrainian Airlines uh, jetliner, which also then you know, showed a lot of the dysfunctionality of the military uh, establishment uh, and of the political system in Iran. But just to get that fact right as a third point, in a sense, 
if this was supposed to be somehow uh, having a consequence on Iranian domestic politics, it certainly had the consequence of rather reinforcing the Islamic Republic uh, rather than uh, weakening it. And then perhaps lastly, you know, the IRGC is not uh, a one-man show. It came out of the Iran-Iraq war. It, again, hundreds of thousands, uh, if not millions of people fought in that war. And, and then afterwards, it kind of specialized itself in kind of foreign operations and asymmetrical warfare and so on and so forth. But it is a fairly well-institutionalized uh, system. And while Qasem Soleimani had great charisma and, and commanded personal loyalty of a lot of people, Hence, we saw these massive turnout at the funerals. This is not something that will just disintegrate uh, with one person being taken out. And in fact, the downing of that jetliner aside, we've actually seen a kind of resurgence of the, the conservative right wing in Iranian politics and in the economy. And uh, Iran also has, has elections, parliamentary elections next month. So there we will see immediately what the impact of this strike will be on Iranian uh, politics. But I would also uh, think that it was probably counterproductive. In that sense, it's actually led to a kind of united front of what used to be called the moderates and the conservatives, President Rouhani, the foreign minister, those people who were broadly seen more as the moderates or, or, or whatever, uh, the reformists of the regime have taken a, a very similar line to, to the hardliners. And so, in a sense, on the Iranian political scene, uh, it's also led to a unification of ranks, therefore also counterproductive. Perhaps on a last point, you know, Iran is under extreme economic uh, pressure. It's not, uh, because it's not such a sexy story that people write about. But the sanctions and, you know, blocking Iran from exporting oil has basically meant that for the last few years, Iran or the regime already feels more or less at war because, uh, you know, uh, also the designation of the RGC as, as terrorist group, now of uh, Hezbollah as a terrorist group, and so on and so forth. From the Iranian perspective, this has been somehow kind of a war already for a while, and now this, you know, assassination of a very, very senior figure, I think, has, you know, has increased that sense. Um, this, together with the withdrawal of the United States from the JCPOA, and now the Iranians also withdrawing from it because they say, um, you know, it's not working for them understandably to a certain extent means that the nuclear file moving ahead this year and in the near future will become a huge problem again and i see great danger here because it uh, was a multilateral framework that was doing more or less what it was set out to do in a sense limit uh, iranian enrichment activities and i think moving ahead this will be one area in which the, the danger is to well, to the region are, are really uh, quite high. So I suppose I've uh, made a couple of points and I leave it at that, but um, I'm looking forward to your questions and comments. Thank you, Toby. Great. Simon, for the last tour of the horizon. Thank you. Thank you very much. When I, <coughs> morning Qasem Soleimani was killed, I sort of did a number of interviews on uh, uh, BBC and LBC and with this, that and the other, Sky and whatever. And, uh, you know, we've always thought, what, what are the Americans going, going to do next? Or what are the Iranians going to do next? And I said, well, the Iranians are going to have to do something. And the initiative now sits with the Iranians as to whether they are going to lash out. And I said, if I were sensible, if I was an Iranian looking at where I have got to since 2003, when we overthrew Saddam and then failed to establish a really viable, stable, secure rich Iraq, 
We've basically taken the cork out of the bottle of Iranian ambition in the Mesopotamian the Levant. I would do nothing. The Iranians then, by either a bit of luck and judgment, then attacked two large uh, air bases. And again, many of you will understand how big an air base is. You, you hit an air base, there's a lot of unpopulated ground in air base. And I thought, that's either clever or, with a little bit of warning, the Americans have managed to secure themselves so nobody was, was killed. Uh, and I thought, well, that is extremely clever because precisely as Emma and Toby and, um, and Felix have said, the pressure is to get the Americans out of the Middle East. And this now will force this, uh, this, this debate to be had, and we had this non-binding whatever. And then, lo and behold, they shot down the Ukrainian airliner. So what went from everybody partly orchestrated coming out on the streets to mourn Qasem Soleimani, and again, I'll come back to that, be under no illusions, he was a rock star in certain communities across the Levant and Mesopotamia. He was absolutely looked on as the defender of the Shia minorities, mostly. Let's remember there are a majority in Iraq, and, uh, and the person who stood up to, be it Israel, be it AQI, be it ISIS, and be it the Americans. Uh, equally, a, a real hate figure among others. Uh, and then they managed to get a huge outpouring of uh, support and then Lerbhold shooting down the U Ukrainians allowed the, uh, a lot of young Iranians to break away from a feeling that we're going to be disloyal to being able to legitimately criticise their government again, which they have been doing a lot on the back, of course, of the economic uh, sanctions, etc., for a large number of reasons. Uh, and the thing in the Levant, um, a great one for taking, I'm a historian by academic training, is you've got to get those bloody lines off the map in the Middle East. And then you've got to look at what the geography is. And you look at the run from the Zagros Mountains across the Euphrates and the Tigris all the way to the Mediterranean. And then you need to overput on that the tribal, uh, and in particular the, both the ethnic and the confessional makeup of those countries. And of course you can see uh, from the Alawites through to the areas of Hezbollah in, the, in the Lebanon, through Damascus, various other areas. And then of course into Najaf, Karbala, Basra, Baghdad, all the Shia elements. All of which to an extent allow the Iranians' pressure points. And it is one of the most remarkably diverse areas of the world, uh, the Levant and Mesopotamia. It's the birthplace of civilization. Uh, and a bit like, I suppose, the low countries in Europe, it is the cockpit of the Middle East. It's where armies move to and fro. It's where great migratory whatever's have taken place over, over centuries. So the overlapping and the sense of historical entitlement that exists between Iranians, Turks, and, and Arabs is quite, is quite remarkable. Uh, and I used to get really irritated in the Ministry of Defence when I was responsible for some of the operational planning, that we used to have a map of Iraq there. And then Iran, Syria and Turkey were all sort of in white, as if this line through the desert, which we all know was a sort of Sykes-Picot agreement, actually meant something. If you were a camel herder or you wandered up and down the Euphrates Valley, uh, or your tribe or your family were there, or, dare I say, you were actively pushing Al-Qaeda fighters down the Euphrates Valley in order to take on both the coalition and the Shia majority. And I remember again in 2006-07, that's where Emma and I were out in, uh, in Baghdad together, and we put up a, a mission statement. I was the deputy commander for the core level. And it said, and I, I understood the frustration as a certain way of the Americans generate missions. So it comes up from the bottom rather than down from the top. And we were getting whacked by what they call EFPs, explosively formed projectiles, much, much more potent 
than IEDs. And the IEDs were being uh, basically generated uh, largely by AQ, Al-Qaeda and, and probably the Sunni insurgency. But we were facing in two directions. We were fighting against a Sunni insurgency and we were fighting against an ever more confident Shia militia, heavily backed by the Quds Force. And Qasem Soleimani very firmly behind that. And the mission statement went up to destroy Iranian influence in Iraq. And you said, hang about. We've overthrown Saddam. We've now handed power through democracy to a country that's 60% Shia, many of whose leaders under Saddam were hanging out in Tehran or over the border in Iraq, a blood debt. And we were right on that cusp of where do your, where do your loyalties lie? Do they lie ethnically as an Arab? Yes, many of them do. Do they lie nationally because you're an Iraqi? Or do they lie confessionally because you're one of the Shia who traditionally in the Arab world have very much been on the back foot? We eventually turned the mission statement into to defeat malign Iranian influence in Iraq or contribute to it because so much of the defeat was at the political level and that wasn't totally in the military's task. Now I just want to say, because I'm a historian, it's just understanding Iran because it is extraordinary how many people in Iran still carry the name Shapur, Ardashir, Cyrus and Darius. This sense of pre-Islamic greatness still exudes very, very strongly in Iranian psyche. They have been a great imperial power. The Achaemenid Empire was into the Balkans, all the way through Anatolia, while the Turks were still tribes coming out of the east, eastern steppes. Absolutely predated the Arab empires of the Umayyads and the Abbasids. Do not underestimate this feeling of ethnic superiority in certain elements of Iran. Second part, of course, is the conversion to Shiism under the Safavis. In a sense, to differentiate the Iranians, this great historical power, from the Arabs and by then the Turks, the Ottomans. And of course, the Ottomans had taken over the leadership of the Sunni Muslim world by that stage. Thirdly, of course, 1971, the Islamic Revolution. Islamic uh, Iranian Republican Guard Corps, foundation of the Quds Force, Quds Jerusalem. And this idea that actually Iran would lead the Islamic world, not simply the Shia Islamic world, but the Islamic world, and hence their support for people like Hamas. And then fourthly, of course, you come to uh, the, the fight within um, the championship of the Shia. So those four elements at which the Quds Force and Qasem Soleimani himself, this very, very, you know, known, known in some areas as the Rommel, the Rommel of the Levant, have used and harnessed that to put themselves in this position. And now when you see that Iran, through the Quds Force and through Qasem Soleimani, are to an extent dominant in Beirut through Hezbollah, they're obviously dominant in, in, in Syria through the Alawites, minority there, of course. Uh, they're dominant to an extent in Iraq, in Baghdad, through the Hashd al-Shabi. Uh, and of course, you could talk about the Houthis down in Yemen, slightly disconnected. Uh, geographically. So it is quite difficult to see, and then you take also a sort of global context in which the Americans are retrenching and have done for, for a while, I think whether it was Felix or Emma saying that you know, this, this is a, you know, what Trump's doing is a bit of a continuation of what Obama was doing, trying to get out of something that sadly has failed. Russia, much more revanchist, 
who thought we'd see the Russians interfering now, not just in Syria, but uh, in Libya. There is an Iranian influence there. And then, of course, you see China uh, becoming much more important because the Americans don't need the oil, but the Chinese will continue to do so. And I can see Iran as quite a parasitic force because if the Americans do go and the Iranians want them out and the Shia, to an extent, want them out, although a lot want them to stay precisely because of this ambivalence they have about their, their attitude, the Iranians, are we Shia or are we Arab on this? Then it is very difficult to see how you might get the Iranians out of that position of power in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Baghdad. Uh, and certainly the Turks can't do it, and certainly the Arabs can't do it, and certainly the West aren't going to go back in for that. The other side, of, it, of course, is precisely, again, as Emma and Toby have mentioned, is Iran is weak. It's unpopular, the fact that they're using lots of money in a weak, economically weak state to be supporting this sort of Quds Force, you know, aggressive stance out, out there. And, uh, you know, all over the Middle East, there are a, you know, a, second, a second round of the Arab Spring in terms of bad governance, poor handling of the economy, corruption, uh, etc. So from the one hand, I'd say, if you sit in, in Tehran and you have a great sense of history, you think we are in actually a stronger position than we have been for a very long time. On the other hand, of course, you will be thinking we're mm, in quite a difficult situation. How do, we, how do we ride the tiger, which is a sort of economic, social, cultural, generational uh, fight there? So it will be very interesting. But I don't think the killing of Qasem Soleimani was quite significant in itself because it rallied. I think it's significant in what it meant for what the capacity of a Quds Force, IRGC, or Iran to continue to act in this rather clever but rather malign activity across the, across the region. But I think they're in quite an interesting position from a historical point of view, Iranian point of view. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Simon. Well, thank you all very much.